this is the motherfucking blood doctor show on a Saturday morning a really fucking early Saturday morning I'm talking like 1am Friday night Saturday morning but you know how we do it on the blood doctor show we do it whenever the fuck I feel like doing it and I feel the fuck like doing it right now and I just want to dive in I want to talk about what's hitting me first off I am a little sick It is yet undetermined What I am sick from It is likely COVID or something similar A flu, etc My brain is working at like 10% power right now So if I seem stupid Or out of sorts or slow Or whatever on this episode I do apologize But I do think it has a lot to do With my goddamn brain Basically not being here My being folks However, I will state if it is COVID, I am vaxxed, double vaxxed, boosted, triple vaxxed. I'm waiting on being eligible for quad vaxxing. So let it be known that I am very pro-vaccine. I think everyone who knows me knows that. And so even though I am sick, I am very pro-vaccine. You should be as well. If you're an anti-vaxxer, you're a fucking idiot. All right. Let's just let's just get that out of the way. I understand that sometimes there are certain situations where a new vaccine can be difficult for people who are pregnant or have a specific disease that it hasn't been tested with. I'm not trying to say that there's no situation. I hate when people do that where you're like, you say, I'm pro-vax and everyone's like, well, what about this one very specific situation? I'm not fucking talking about that, okay? You should be pro-vax. And if there is some medical reason that you need to wait to make sure a vaccine is safe, fine. But why do I even need to say this? Do you know how ridiculous it is that I need to say this stuff? I'm not even, this wasn't even the intention for the beginning of the show. But the stupidity that Americans live with day to day, that we just that we just throw at the world we just spout our stupidity all the time it's unbelievable fair enough that this actually leads into what i did want to talk about off the top which is california governor gavin newsom announcing this week that california is going to be producing their own insulin for uh, patients who need it So California residents, instead of having to pay exorbitant drug company costs if they don't have the right insurance or, you know, blah, blah, etc., they're going to be able to get state-created insulin for pennies on the dollar, what you'd be paying otherwise. Um, This is a fucking W for California, okay? I love California. I miss living there. But it is fair to say that California is not perfect in every way. That shit is very fair to say. There are a lot of things about California that can be frustrating, but this is a massive fucking W for so many reasons. Number one, the simple fact of the matter is, is that insulin should be cheap and easily accessible for everyone who needs it, but it's not. We live in a country that somehow does prioritize profits over health. That's insane. It shouldn't be a thing, and I can't even believe I'm saying it, but it actually is a thing in this country. Corporations have acquired so much power that, you know, their bottom line is more important than the bottom line of human health. And thus, a situation like this where a state says, no, we're going to take back control. 
we're going to produce our own insulin and we're going to make it available for the public. That shit is noteworthy because of how rare something like that is. And it's noteworthy for a lot of other reasons. As many have pointed out, not only does this lower the cost of insulin, but this also creates jobs. You build a new facility, you, you know, you're producing insulin. I'm sure there's research that goes along with that. Um, you know, there's distribution, all, all of those things. This creates jobs and it helps people. It's a win-win. And even if you're not generating record profits, you're still making money from the insulin sales for the program. So the program will sustain itself. It's not free, but it's going to be incredibly cheap. And that cost basically sustains the program and allows people to live. What a unique fucking concept. Now, in an ideal world, people would just be able to get whatever medicine they wanted free right now, right away. Not wanted, need. But in an ideal world, you'd just be able to get whatever medicine you needed immediately, right away, without it being an issue. We don't live in an ideal world. We live in a bullshit world. And in a bullshit world, I'm going to take this one as a W. It's not perfect, but it's still a W. The other thing about this is that any and all power that we can take away from pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies, really, we should. We absolutely should. And this is not to say that government necessarily always handles things better than private corporations do. In a lot of cases, they're both ineffective for extremely different reasons. But the simple fact of the matter is that it's much more difficult for the government to be corrupted for one person's gain. Now, Donald Trump may be a shining icon to the opposite of that statement. But for the most part, a corporation will always work to enrich three, four, five, six, you know, 10, 20 people at the top, whatever the case may be. And the government will at least have some more morality than that. I mean, people fight for government jobs. Let's not fucking lie about that. It's hard to get fired from a government job and people fight to get them. They love them and they do just enough to keep them. And doing just enough to keep them means doing your job. And I just happen to believe that the California government is going to do a better job of getting insulin to people than pharmaceutical companies would because pharmaceutical companies have fucking failed. So why don't we give the state governments a try? You know, what's going to kill me is that Republicans will sit here and trash this whole idea, but they're the ones that sit here and talk about states power and states rights all the time. Well, a state should be able to do this and a state should be able to do that until a state tries to help people. Then suddenly that state has crossed the line. Well, we don't do that here in America, folks. We don't help people. What we do here in America is we hurt everyone around us, and then we claim that Jesus told us to. That's what we do here in America. Fuck y'all. Fuck all of these ideas. And go California. I'm not a Gavin Newsom stan in any way. As far as I understand, the man has stood in the way of California adopting universal health care on multiple occasions. So he's not a good person in my book. But nonetheless, this is still a W for the state of California and for establishment Democrats for doing something. See, what a unique, interesting situation. What a fun situation. The Democrats actually doing something. Wow. Oh my God, it's fucking new. 
you have all this power and you do something with it. Well, what a shocking idea. Who would have thought? It's frustrating. It's really fucking frustrating to have spent most of your life in a party that pretended to care about you, but only cared enough to make sure that they sent you a donation email after the latest thing that they ignored building up to allowing to happen. That's why I'm not a Democrat anymore. I am so far left that not one policy that I support is supported by the Democrats. So I am about as hard on them as you can get. And this is a fucking W. And I just hope that Washington, Oregon, and California decide they're going to take up the mantle of states' rights. Stare the GOP motherfuckers in the face and just say to them, yeah, we believe in states' rights and our states' rights are this. And if they tell you no, too bad. States' rights. Washington, Oregon, and California may become the last bastions of sanity in this fucking country. They really might. Because even in this fucking state, which is supposedly turning purple and trending towards blue, Mark Kelly is running ads right now about how crazy it is to defund the police. Like, number one, that's not even a talking point right now. It should be, but it's not one. But he's still running on something from 2020 because he's trying to win Republican votes. That's Arizona. That's the Arizona Democratic Party. And that's the Democratic Party that I'm used to. Always tacking right to make sure that they get the entire tent, which is, of course, the right wing and the center right wing. Fuck the Democrats. They're just not for me anymore. I'm not a part of the party. But a win is a win. And when you do something that is good for people, I will support it. And this is one of those situations. In the words of George Carlin, sometimes you have to work with people that you wouldn't even invite into your own home. And that's why I'm announcing my intent to cooperate with California Democrats. Fair enough. For the record, in case anyone's wondering what my political leanings are, like so that you could assign something to it, the DSA is about as close to my beliefs as any one group could get. I don't think that any group or any political party is ever going to encompass all of our beliefs. I think it's probably crazy that we expect, you know, any group of people to agree with every single thing that we think. But the DSA is about as close as it gets for me. I rock my DSA jacket proudly. I vote for DSA candidates. That's where I'm at. Let's talk NBA take of the day. And I've actually got three of them. Across three different sections of NBA basketball. And I don't think any of these things are going to come as a surprise to anyone. But... I think I'm holding true with who I am. Number one, look, I don't think Miles Bridges should ever play in the NBA again. Um, I hate to condemn people before there is an actual like criminal trial and, you know, an outcome where, you know, we know that, you know, innocent until proven guilty, right? And I really generally hate to ever step outside that situation. But everything that has gone on in this situation, including hearing Miles Bridges' son, you know, speak out about what happened, like, that situation's a nightmare. And, I mean, look, Mike Vick went to federal prison and came back. But that was for dogfighting. 
Like, it's just hard to envision a scenario in which Miles Bridges can do something that makes him... Like, how do you redeem yourself from this? Like, we could have a real discussion about that if people wanted to. How do you redeem yourself from that? Like, in the real world, you would be able to get a job again, right? You could just, if you worked in, you know, you could work at Best Buy again. But this is not that world. This is a world where you are held to a higher standard and... Whether or not you want to be a role model, whether or not you want to be a person that everyone looks up to, that's the situation that you've put yourself into. And when you put your hands on a woman in front of your child, like that level of like putting your hands on a woman, we all know, I don't even have to sit here and like, no one's going to sit here and laud me for being like domestic violence is wrong. Like we all fucking know that everyone knows that with your most basic instincts you don't, you never hit your partner. Like what kind of person does that? Right. It's wrong. And to do it in front of your child, like just that level of, I I don't know. I don't, I don't know what word to call it, but I just don't see a scenario where we can look at this guy again and be like, you should be playing basketball. Because again, this isn't just like a regular job. This is a special job that you have to earn and it's a privilege and, You know, kids look up to you and you're paid a ton of money to promote a special image and be on the stage and all these things. And I just think, I mean, look, if we want to say he deserves to have the criminal justice system play this whole thing out, then fine. I understand that. And I get that. And I think that that's a fair thing to do. But uh, what is the criminal justice system going to say? It's going to say he's innocent. I. This is a fucked up situation. And I just really hate to judge someone before the criminal situation has been resolved. I try typically not to take stances like that. But this is a situation where I just think I just think there are certain things that are too much. You know, what happened with Greg Hardy was too much and he should have been he should not have been able to play again. Um You know, the MLB has shown that Trevor Bauer, you know, he's, I mean, I I guess he's got a two-year suspension after missing one year. I don't know that he's never going to play again, but, you know, the MLB is showing that if you do something that makes the league look bad, you know, we don't want you here. And that was something where, you know, Trevor Bauer was like cleared almost completely of any wrongdoing but the league still wanted nothing to do with what he did. And there's no way that Miles Bridges is going to be cleared of wrongdoing. Like there's no way that he's going to be innocent here. Maybe he could, you know, rich person skate with some sort of community service and domestic violence classes. I don't know what North Carolina's justice system is like for rich people. I don't know any of that stuff, but like, If you're a team, like, how do you realistically sell to your audience that you care about women and children and also sign that guy? It's just, there's just no scenario that makes sense. And I think that even though ownership and management use the whole, it's a privilege to play in this league line too often in whatever sport it is, you know, I think that gets used sometimes in situations where it's not valid 
and they are demeaning people who don't deserve it. But I think in certain cases it's true. And I think this is really one of those cases that it really is a privilege to play in the NBA. It's a privilege to get to play a game that you love and make billions of dollars. And, you know, that stuff is a privilege. And when you don't even have basic fucking human decency, you forfeit that privilege. And I just don't see a scenario where how do you come back from this? Like, like Mike Vick, after leaving federal prison, he worked with like the ASPCA and he became an advocate against dogfighting and he went around and taught kids. And I think that's really admirable. And I understand why people were able to forgive him. And I am a person who loves my dog, Lucy. She is my life. I love her more than anything in the world. And so I understand how that made some people angry. I really do. Some people were so angry. I get it. But again, you just can't compare animals to humans. And people bring up the Mike Vick thing. He went to federal prison. He went to federal prison. But you just can't compare that situation to humans. Miles Bridges hurt a person. There's no comparison there. And I just don't, even though he's probably not going to go to federal prison for his crime. How do you add that guy to your team? It's just not a question what he did. His son said it. I, I just think we need to move on from Miles Bridges in the NBA. That's what I think. Let's move to happier topics. Basketball, basketball topics. I'll hit the one that everyone knows I want to talk about first, and that is KD to the Suns, obviously. And I mean, here's my thing at this point, okay? The market has not shown that KD is going to generate, you know, the biggest, largest trade package of all time that no one could ever compare. I mean, Zach Lowe has said it. Brian Windhorst has said it. Woj has said it. Shams has said it. I'm not breaking news there, right? The market has simply said that it just may not be the largest trade package of all time. So, so if you're the Suns, you simply can't just trade the entire farm for KD. You just can't. And I know that that makes people crazy to think, oh, you're you're an idiot. You don't want KD. He's the best player of all time, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not trying to say that I don't want Kevin Durant, but you've got to think about these things realistically. He's heading into his age 34 season. Yes, he's on a four-year deal. Great. So he's going to be headed into his age 38 season at the end of it. Like, the list of guys who were elite NBA players at age 38 is very short. And I'm not, you know, I understand it's age 37, his last season with the Suns, fine. The list of NBA players who is elite at age 37 is very short. And I'm not saying that it's impossible. I'm just saying that it's statistically very unlikely. You cannot gut your team for that. Now, part of the problem with all this is that supposedly the Nets don't want DeAndre Ayton. And I said foolishly before, I wish that the Suns would be able to execute this trade with DeAndre Ayton and a bunch of picks without even having to give up Cam Johnson. Well, I was a fucking idiot for saying that when I said it on the Truth Be Told Sports podcast. I was dumb as fuck. I was high and drunk and whatever. I was I was stupid. I'm obviously wrong. You're obviously going to have to give up DeAndre Ayton and Cam Johnson and a bunch of picks. But of course, it comes out that potentially the Nets don't want DeAndre Ayton. So then it becomes you got to find a way to get a bunch of picks. 
And then the salary swaps would potentially require Mikhail Bridges to be involved, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of things going on. Supposedly, the Pacers might want to sign DeAndre Ayton to an offer sheet. But if you know the Pacers and you know Herb Simon, you know that that's not how the Pacers want to do business. When the Pacers wanted to acquire Malcolm Brockton, Herb Simon called the Bucks ownership team and negotiated the deal with them. He doesn't like to steal players from teams. He would call the Suns and try to negotiate a sign and trade. Now, maybe the Pacers are going to not do business that way anymore, but that would be news. If the Pacers suddenly did business in a brand new way, that would be news. That would be shocking. So there's a million factors. But I'm going to tell you the number one A1 factor that matters above all else. You simply can't gut your team to build it around a 38-year-old point guard heading into, or well, okay, I guess he's heading into his age 37 season for Chris Paul because he'll turn 38 late next year, fine. But a 37-year-old point guard and a 34-year-old small forward and a 26-year-old shooting guard, like, what are you doing? What is the rest of the roster? You can't do that. This deal makes sense in a few iterations, but you can't gut the entire team. And the name of the game It's keeping one of Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges. I want the Suns to keep Mikhail Bridges. I really, really do. But if you are forced to include Mikhail Bridges, then you need to keep Cam Johnson. Someone has got to do the defensive work to make the game easier for Kevin Durant. And I'm not trying to say that Cam Johnson is, you know, the defender that Mikhail Bridges is, but Mikhail Bridges is not the offensive player that Cam Johnson is. He's especially not the shooter that Cam can be. So, you got to make your choice, maybe. But if you've got to include both of them, then you need to find a way to keep DA. This whole thing about, well, we're going to trade DA to Utah and a sign and trade, get a couple of picks, and then we send McHale and Cam John. Like, you're gutting your team. You've got to find a way to keep one of those two dudes. You have got to find a way to keep one of those two dudes. That's it. You just do. And if you can do that, then you really do have a path to a championship team. And that's why I'm going to jump segments real quick. I just want to say I'm one in three in my gambling picks right now. Hilarious. So just go ahead and lock in your bets against me. Except this one. Plus 600. Suns to win the championship next year because James Jones is going to find a way to bring Kevin Durant to Phoenix while keeping one of Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges because that is the necessity. Wild card, maybe they keep DeAndre Hayden. In a world where Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges and a boatload of picks and pick swaps were traded to Brooklyn and you got back Kevin Durant, then just keep DeAndre Hayden. It may be difficult to smooth this shit over, but you really could smooth it over with, hey, you're going to play next to Kevin Durant for a championship. And whether you do it on a qualifying offer or a contract you come back to us with, you could either leave next year or you could potentially get yourself to a new team via a trade that wants you after you just won a championship. There's a lot of scenarios that make sense and work. So again... I'm taking the Suns plus 600 to win the title next year. It's just got to happen at some point. And KD wants to play in Phoenix. Everyone knows it. So the name of the game of the Suns is keeping one of those three. 
if you swap out Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges and DeAndre Ayton and a bunch of picks and a bunch of pick swaps for one 34-year-old, you've lost the fucking game. So keep one of those three, even DA, keep one of those three. Do whatever the fuck you want with the picks. I don't care. Then you've done it. But the name of the game for Phoenix is holding on to one of those pieces of that young core. I understand you've got to give up stuff to get stuff. But if you're going to include four first round picks and three pick swaps, you're not also fucking giving up three goddamn good young players who can be all-stars. That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. And if the argument is, well... They're not that good. Then you haven't watched Phoenix. And I don't give a shit about the Mavs series. It's one playoff series. I don't care. One playoff series does not negate everything else that's happened and everything else that will happen. So the name of the game for Phoenix is bring back those three young kids and let's do it again. Even if DeAndre's on the qualifying offer and it's awkward, fuck it. Or you got to bring back one of them on a contract with Kevin Durant. That's the name of the game for Phoenix. It's simple. How they want to go about it, it's up to them. And I'm not going to sit here and outline every single possibility because there's a billion of them. But the name of the game is very simple. I need Kevin Durant in the starting lineup for Phoenix next year with one of Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, and DeAndre Ayton next to him. Preferably for me, Mikhail Bridges. Final NBA take is about the Timberwolves trade for Rudy Gobert. And I don't really want to talk about the trade value of that because everyone and their mother has a fucking opinion about, you know, did the Jazz, you know, fleece the Timberwolves? The Timberwolves paid too much. It's, you know, blah, blah, whatever. Or it's a perfect trade. It's an exact trade, whatever. I, I don't care. I have a few thoughts about the trade in terms of what it means for the Timberwolves and what it means for the NBA itself. What it means for the Timberwolves, number one, it's going to be really interesting watching Carl Towns guarding fours. I mean, it's not as if this has never been tried. And generally when a dude is a bad defensive center because he is not fleet of foot, that doesn't get improved when you move him to the four. But the Timberwolves are banking on the idea that, you know, they can find ways to make it work in the two towers alignment. And I don't think they're necessarily wrong about that. Um, I'm interested to see how Cat survives at the four on defense. But, you know, I don't think it's impossible. And the other thing I see is there's a ton of people like, oh, what does this mean for the future of the NBA? Are we back to, you know, the power forward being big? Are we back to the two towers style? Does this mean that the future of the NBA is the two towers alignment? Are we done with small ball? Is it a big league now? I mean, Jesus Christ, man. One team doing something doesn't mean that the entire NBA is going to do something different. And it's it's very similar to what happened when the Warriors started winning championships. Is Everyone was like, oh, we'll just... We'll play small ball. We'll just find our own Draymond Green. <laughs> well, you know, it turns out that's not so simple. You can't just find a Draymond Green. You can't just find a sort of unicorn generational defensive talent in every draft. It doesn't work that way. And 
Draymond Green, you know, really the only time he was really beaten in a finals was the 2019 Raptors finals was, you know, Gasol just went over him. I know that the Cavs beat the the Warriors in the finals previously, but I'm not necessarily putting that one specifically on Draymond. Draymond played great in that finals. The rest of the Warriors more so, not as much. And specifically, Steph struggled at times. But that, that you know, Raptors finals with Kawhi Leonard and Marc Gasol, you know, they just shot, Marc Gasol just shot straight over Draymond several times. And it was just a matchup problem that the Warriors couldn't solve with the thin bench. But the league did not be like, oh, well, now it's all bigs again. Like they didn't panic and suddenly turn away from the Draymond Green thing just because the Raptors won one title with Marc Gasol there. And obviously I understand Kawhi Leonard was the finals MVP and Fred Van Vliet was amazing and Norm Powell was amazing and Kyle Lowry was amazing. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, Marc Gasol powered the Raptors to that championship or something, but it was a very clear problem that the Warriors couldn't deal with. And it didn't send the league into a spiral about the idea that small ball was ruined. But somehow Rudy Gobert and Carl Towns teaming up has now put all these people into this like, oh my God, is small ball dead? Is this the end of small ball in the NBA? Are we back to the Twin Towers alignment? No, because you can't just find a Rudy Gobert. You can't just find a dude who is a defense all unto himself. And you can't just find a Carl Towns who can just shoot the fucking lights out. You know, we all make fun of the whole Carl Anthony Towns called himself the best shooting big of all time. And Dirk Nowitzki was kind of like, uh, what about me? Bob? You know, everyone jokes about that. But for what Rudy Gobert lacks in offense and what Carl Towns lacks in defense, they both kind of make up for that pairing together. And there's probably never been a pairing like this in history with a big man who can shoot the fucking lights out and score from anywhere and a big man who can defend everyone and completely shut down the rim and be a top five NBA regular season defense all unto himself. So this pairing is basically unforeseen. We've really never seen anything like this. Now, maybe Bill Simmons could come on here and give me a historian lesson about the 1976, whoever, whatever that had blah, blah, et cetera. And, you know, I'm aware of, I think there was like some Hakeem and Ralph Sampson years and Hakeem's early Rockets years. You know, I, I understand those things, but there's never been this level of shooting and this level of defense in two players, in two bigs, in a twin towers formation like this, you know, Dirk never had, an elite, elite center next to him. Now, you might argue that, you might argue, you could argue that the championship Mavericks, the Dirk Mavericks that had Dirk at power forward and Tyson Chandler at center, you could argue that that team had a similar construction because Dirk was the focal point of the offense. Tyson Chandler was the focal point of the defense. And then you had sort of a dual point guard alignment with uh, Jason Kidd and J.J. Barea. And then on the wing, you had Deshaun Stevenson. And of course, um, Jason Terry was there. Karan Butler would have been there, but he was injured by the finals. But 
the point is that is a team that had a very similar construction of the best shooting big man of all time, Dirk, and an elite defensive player in Tyson Chandler. Now, the reason I would say that this alignment has never existed before is because I think even Tyson Chandler at his best, I don't think he was ever as good as Rudy Gobert. Like Tyson Chandler wasn't in contention for defensive player of the year every season. He had a couple of very, very, very good defensive seasons. But I don't think that Tyson Chandler was ever, at least for an extended period of time, as good as Rudy Gobert was. Now, Tyson Chandler has a ring. Rudy Gobert doesn't. So, you know, I'm sure that he would argue with me. But that Mavs team is probably the construction that the Timberwolves should be looking at in terms of championships. Now... Maybe they are. Who knows? I don't know necessarily if or what connections that team has to Dallas in the front office or coaching or whatever. Maybe there's some. There's probably not. But that's probably the closest comparison that you could draw in terms of an elite defensive center and an elite scoring power forward. And, you know, Dirk wasn't exactly fleet of foot either. So, you know, you could point to that as something that would lend the potential for success to uh, you know, this whole situation, but that was also in a time before the stretch four was everything to the league. So who knows? But that team won a championship against LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. And I understand LeBron was terrible that year, but nonetheless, that's a comparison that could be really interesting to look at. And so anytime that people are sitting there saying, well, this is going to change the way the league operates. I don't see how. This is the first time that this has come along in 12 years. Like, this is something that comes along every now and then. And, you know, people have pointed out that Chris Finch has made the two bigs alignment work previously in his career. He made it work with, you know, everyone loves to point out, you know, Anthony Davis and Boogie Cousins. Essentially, a lot of stops where he was an assistant coach. I believe the Nurkic-Jokic thing was also brought up in Denver. So the point is, he is an assistant coach and, and an offensive-minded guy has had impact on teams that wanted to play in the two towers alignment. So you have a coach who historically has done well with this and two of the best players who would be inclined to play in this situation that have come along in a decade. You can't just recreate this. It's It's not that simple. So... I think what the Timberwolves are doing is unique. I think it's interesting. The Timberwolves and Magic, to me, are going to be two of the most interesting teams to watch next season. And I think that that is something that I think they would love to hear in terms of, you know, like their front office would love to hear that. Because for a long time, those are two teams that you wanted to ignore. Even in the Kevin Love days, I really didn't give a shit about what was going on in Minnesota. Even with Ricky Rubio around, I was like, eh. But with Ant and with Cat and now with Gobert, like this shit is interesting as fuck. And I'm very, I'm going to watch a lot of Timberwolves basketball this season. I'll be honest, but I don't think it necessarily changes the league because I don't think you can recreate what they're doing. I think that what the Timberwolves have is, is, is pretty special and unique and whether or not it works to the level of success, I don't know, but maybe we'll finally get the Booker Towns, Western Conference Finals I've been dreaming of. That'd be interesting. But you can't just recreate it. This does not just 
mean Two Towers basketball is back. This is a special situation. And I almost hope it works for that fact. Like, not necessarily winning a championship, but I would love a Suns-Timberwolves Western Conference Finals because I would love to see something old school come back. Because this game is cyclical, okay? In the old days, it was 144 to 130. And then over time, eventually defense became the thing. And then in the 80s, it was like, we're going to win 85 to 82. And then in the 90s, it kind of became a blend. And now we've exploded the offense again. But, you know, someday a slower, grittier pace is going to come back. And maybe a couple of championships from a two towers team could do that. Now, I don't want that because I want the Suns to win every championship forever. So if that two towers team that wins a couple of championships is Phoenix, so be it, whatever the case may be, I'm going to be interested to watch some Timberwolves basketball this season. I can say that for sure. There is no NFL news really worth discussing. Baker Mayfield is traded to the Panthers in the most sort of whatever trade of all time that probably should have been done a month ago that no one really cares about at this point. And, you know, I argued pro Baker earlier on this podcast on an earlier episode, and I stand by what I said, but, you know, a trade to Carolina is sort of like the only situation you could be in that's worse than, like, Cleveland, (laughs) like, is Carolina. Like, I know that right now Cleveland's in a pretty good spot team-wise, but just, like, historically, they're a disaster, and despite the fact that things are going well for them right now, the one place you could go that like it's bleak as fuck going forward. <laughs> well, that's Carolina. So I just don't, you know, there's nothing is going to happen there. That's going to change anyone's minds about Baker, unfortunately for him. Um, and then the other news would be that the NFL has announced that they're going to move to a streaming service with NFL Sunday ticket. So this will be most likely the last year for direct TV. And then who knows if it'll be Apple or Amazon or whatever. But I can tell you one thing for sure about Sunday Ticket. It's going to be expensive. And I'll probably just keep stealing games. Again, gambling pick of the day. Suns to win the championship next year plus 600 at DraftKings. But I'm 1-3 thus far, so you take that for what? You want it to mean I choose to believe that it means that I had to start one and three to get the Suns winning the title next year so I could start two and three retroactively, of course, because I'm going to make more picks before that's, you know, done. But uh, I'm going to fuck. I do what I want. Now I want to cover two sort of late to the party reviews that I have. So, again, Could be some spoilers in these. I'm not trying to ruin the end of everything so much. But could be some spoilers here. So skip ahead to me destroying the microphone, of course. If you don't want to hear me talk about plot points. I'm going to talk about the television show Schitt's Creek and the movie Last Night in Soho. Again, as I said, I'm kind of late to the party on both, but that's fine. I can talk about them when I want to. The thing about Schitt's Creek for me. I found the ending sort of bizarre. And I think that. 
maybe they wanted to sort of deviate from the typical sitcom ending, and I think that's fine. But the ending of Schitt's Creek is almost sort of like the ending of the first season of a sitcom when everyone separates and you're like, oh, man, will they get back together? And really, the question is based on whether or not the show is going to be canceled. And it's just sort of a weird ending for everyone to go their separate ways. Alexis is single. David is married. That makes sense. You know, Johnny's got the Rosebud Motel going again. Moira's got her show going again. It sort of felt like the episode before the finale where everyone decides to abandon all of those things and come home. Like Alexis and Ted sort of separating was a very bizarre. It seems like the Ted dude just left the show and maybe that's what it was. Um, and I, it was just a very bizarre. It felt like it ended in the middle and maybe they just kind of wanted to. Everyone goes to do their own thing. They're happy. That's what it is. That's fine. It just felt like a different resolution than you would typically get. And maybe that's the point. And maybe I'm missing the point. I don't know. I just, I found it interesting. I found it interesting that instead of the typical sort of the family chooses to stay together thing, the family all goes their separate ways. And it's not as if they won't see each other again. But the point of Shit's Creek was supposed to be that these people grew. The point was supposed to be that it was like a rich family who fell on their face and then came to this small town, which forced them to grow as people and become different people who would ultimately make different choices. But in the end, they all sort of chose to be selfish again. Alexis went off to do whatever it was she was going to do in New York. Moira got her show back. Johnny got a business. David is really the only one who truly grew and changed. He, you know, meets his man and settles down and maybe, you know, he and Patrick are, you know, just as sort of the straight men of the comedy sense of, of the term straight men. Um, they are supposed to be the only ones who actually do something that makes sense. Um, but it's just kind of weird that the characters just go, go back to being sort of selfish in the end and doing what they kind of always wanted to do. And I found that weird. I found it to be like there was no real growth. And again, maybe that was some of the point is to show that only David really grew and everyone else sort of went back to who they were. But, you know, Alexis initially cheats on Ted with Mutt and then grows and becomes this whole new person and goes through this whole thing to get him back. And again, maybe he just left the show and that's why they kind of ended it awkwardly or whatever but that's still a bizarre you could have found a way to just not have him on the show and they still end up together and you get him back for the final episode sort of thing so it was weird that because she leaves ted to start her or not start but keep her pr business going and then immediately sort of falls flat on her face with that pr business and sure, I mean, plenty of times when we start a business in life, it fails. It doesn't go the way we want it to. I understand that. But it's just interesting that this is a character. It's not real life. And sure, she grows, she changes, she matures, she's more caring. But ultimately, she just ends up going to be the girl who's off alone partying again. You know, Alexis just sort of becomes a nicer version of herself Johnny just gets a new business. 
I'm not really sure what changes so much about Moira. I mean, she's nicer to Jocelyn at the end. I just thought it was an interesting. That show to me was sort of started with the concept of what happens to these people and how would they actually grow and become better people? And it ended with, oh, they wouldn't. Only David did. (laughs) And maybe that's what the intention was. The intention was, hey, these people are motherfuckers and they're always going to be motherfuckers and you shouldn't expect motherfuckers to be anything more than that. And truthfully, I'm okay with that. I just thought it was an interesting ending. But aside from all of that, the show is thoroughly enjoyable. It has good rewatch value. I think it's 80 episodes total. There's, you know, a lot of interesting plot points. There's some serious stuff. There's a couple of moments that get you and you're like, yeah. Um, There's a couple of really annoying moments. They obviously involve singing. Singing in the middle of a sitcom is something that I can barely stand. But for the most part, it's a good show and worth watching and something that, you know, it's one of those shows that I definitely I'm working. I need something going on to sort of distract me when I'm working on something. Shit's Creek is a show that I'll have, um, you know, on repeat. It's in the it's in the cycle for me. So definitely a show I enjoy. Definitely something worth watching. Just an interesting, strange ending. Not every ending has to be perfect. Not every ending has to be exactly what you think. So I'll give them credit for that. It was still a happy ending despite being not what I expected. And I enjoyed it. And I, you know, I mean, Eugene Levy is awesome. He is a legend of comedy. Everything he has been in has been awesome. And I love seeing him in stuff like this where he can play a more, you know, central role. And... I I do thoroughly enjoy that part and, you know, seeing him and his son and Twyla, the waitress, who is, you know, his daughter, seeing them all sort of interact together on screen. It's just the shit is fun. It's a good show. I recommend it. The final topic before we hit the verse of the day is Last Night in Soho. Directed by Edgar Wright. Starring Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. An interesting fucking movie. And I am someone who really enjoys Edgar Wright. I fucking loved Baby Driver. And so when I heard about a sort of horror, stylistic, 60s theme movie that had some of the same musical-ish elements, you know, I was very interested. And, you know, I enjoyed this movie. I don't, um, some parts of it were predictable. Some parts of it were shocking. Some parts of it I liked. Some parts of it I didn't. But overall, it was an enjoyable film. I mean, the cinematography, the lighting, the color, it's all very cool. And, you know, it reminds me in some ways of, interestingly enough, John Wick 3, because there were scenes in the city where, There's so much color set against this sort of dark world and, you know, the characters kind of walking through it and experiencing it. And I I felt the similar way with this movie. You bring there was so much color and life in such a dark world. Um, Essentially, a fashion student comes to London and starts living 
you know, lucid waking nightmares of a girl who dreamed of being a singer, but ended up being forced into prostitution um, by who she thought was her boyfriend and ended up being her pimp. And she believes this girl is murdered and she's trying to solve the murder while her own life is falling apart. It's a really interesting movie. Um, one parallel I thought that was interesting that the movie had no intention of drawing. Obviously, it was just something that I personally drew. This is not a parallel at all, I guess, but just an interesting thought. The main character has mental issues that are sort of, it seems like it's supposed to be schizophrenia. She sees her mother in mirrors, essentially, and she sees visions, and it seems like they're sort of, you know, putting on a movie version of schizophrenia. But it almost evolves into a superpower because she's able to live the life of this other person in her dreams. And, you know, she has visions of what that person went through that are in no way dreams. They're literally visions. So it's almost an unexplained superpower. And it's something that reminded me of the black phone, because in the black phone, you know, the kid communicates with dead kids who were killed by the murderer. And there's no explanation for how, that works or why it works and it's fine it's not really necessary it just is what it is it's a horror movie right and i thought that was sort of an interesting thing that you know they also took that tack where it's like you know it doesn't matter how it works it just does um my only real issue with the movie is that Anyone who is forced into prostitution is wrong. That's sex trafficking. But I just. I worry sometimes that all sex work is painted as sex trafficking. And that's not the case. And I just hope that people are able to make the distinction between sex work, which involves sex workers who are consenting to what they're doing and sex trafficking, which is what this movie is about, which is people being forced into you know, prostitution and other acts. I think that's an important distinction to make. And I don't feel like this movie made it. Um, I felt like at times this movie was sort of saying that sex work is wrong and that anyone involved in sex work or anyone participating with sex workers is evil. And maybe that wasn't the intention, but I felt like there was no distinction made between sex work and sex trafficking. Now, Maybe I'm splitting hairs there, but I actually think that's an important distinction to make um, because I think that especially with the prevalence of things like OnlyFans and Just for Fans and all these things, as that becomes part of society, we need to be clear that there is a significant difference between sex work and sex trafficking and that consent is the biggest you know, and most significant part of that. Just like consent is the most important part of sex, it's the same thing in terms of sex work. And so this movie takes place during the 60s before, you know, we reached the modern day of sex work. But, you know, sex work has always been a part of life. And so that's why it makes me question whether the intent was to demonize in some ways sex workers. We shouldn't do that. We should demonize sex traffickers who force people into sex work that don't want to be there. Now, again, that was what took place in the movie, but there were certain other elements that made me wonder. And again, maybe I'm looking too deeply into it. It's just one thing that's important. We should 
regulate and support sex workers. We should not, you know, arrest them, put them in jail, things like that. We should be doing our best to make society. There should just be as little jail time as possible. And maybe I'm just on my soapbox again, but I just want to be clear that a person being a sex worker does not mean that they should go to jail. And I wasn't sure all the time that everyone in this movie felt that way. Now, there is a character in the movie who was a police officer who tries to protect and save the girls from the sex trafficking. But that presupposes that police officers are good guys. <laughs> so I'm not sure about that. But an interesting film with an interesting ending. Um. I don't want to say it just because it's worth watching. So for once I won't ruin the entire ending, but just make sure that you're hating on sex traffickers and not sex workers. It's an important distinction to make. That's all I'm saying. What a great time to start fucking rapping, but I will anyway. I'm here 12 hours later. I like this one a lot. Let's do this shit. Yeah. I feel this beat. Shit is sick. Yo. I could kill you with the motherfucking flow off the dome, but all I'm really trying to do is go home. Nowhere to roam. No mad overblow. Nobody standing in my way trying to give me the capone. Rise quickly when you reach for the throne Cause they're walking towards you trying to leave you in the dead zone No matter the hall you hail, there is no fail The simple truth is trying hard is the only holy grail Perfection is the enemy of progress Giving a fuck is the enemy of process Haters can talk, but the rambling is nonsense I've been on the mic since I was ten Man, you can't stop this Animate your conscience, accelerate responses Just make a fucking project, man, no matter what the contents I'm sick as fuck with COVID, but still thinking on ethereal planes Trying to conquer all my demons, leaving speakers in flames I know you're sad I'm not a real doc Cause I can't write prescriptions that'll make you leave jock But I'm here to tell you I am still the real clock Time after time I'm gonna be there like I'm real locked I bear the meanings in my rhymes cause my feel's not Something for public consumption, but your real thought is that I'm burying the lead inside a steel box But you just missed the fucking point Like I'm a real fox Fuck fox I wanna be with all the have-nots On the front lines throwing molotovs at mad cops And if you hate on BLM You can kick rocks Fuck the police and everybody with the blue swatch Ha! Yeah 2022 From me to you And I just want to say, peace be unto you. But fuck religion. <laughs>